The first reading is taken from Isaiah 52, starting at chapter 1. Awake, awake, O Zion. Clothe yourself with strength. Put on your garments of splendor, O Jerusalem, the holy city. The uncircumcised and defiled will not enter you again. Shake off your dust, rise up, sit enthroned, O Jerusalem. Free yourself from the chains on your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For this is what the Lord says. You are sold for nothing, and without money, you will be redeemed. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says. At first, my people went down to Egypt to live. Lately, Assyria has oppressed them. And now, what do I have here, declares the Lord. For my people have been taken away for nothing, and those who rule them mock, declares the Lord. And all day long my name is constantly blasphemed. Therefore, my people will know my name. Therefore, in that day, they will know that it is I who foretold it. Yes, it is I. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices, together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. And the second reading can be found in 2 Corinthians, and it's starting at chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all the saints throughout Achaia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For, just as as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We are under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves but on God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. 
as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on, on our behalf for your gracious favour granted us in our answer to the prayers of many. And then it continues in chapter 7, verses 2 to 7, and starting at verse 2. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have great confidence in you. I take pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. This is God's word. Thank you for reading. Good morning. Uh, Let me have my welcome. My name is uh, Matt Fuller, if we've not met. We're looking at 2 Corinthians 1. Good to turn back to uh, that one, if uh, you're still in chapter 7. Now, 2 Corinthians really asks a simple question, which is, where does your confidence lie? Is it in the power of God or the power of men? Now, that is a question that will be asked through this letter. Where does your confidence lie? But to sharpen it slightly, what sort of leaders do you take confidence in? I mean, I think instinctively most of us want a sort of powerful, physically impressive leaders, and not, as the Apostle Paul will describe himself in this letter, a fool, a wimp, dying. It gets towards the end of the letter, chapter 12, verse 10. He declares, when I am weak, that's when I'm strong. Is that the sort of leader that most instinctively want? It wasn't instinctively what the Corinthian church wanted. Of course, they're growing up in a sort of Greco-Roman tradition. Their heroes are Greek heroes. You know, physically impressive Heracles. You know, Battling an Emean lion, lopping nine heads off a hydra, that's, that's a leader, that's a hero. Perseus, whipping off Medusa's head, that's impressive, that's powerful. You know, men, rippling muscles, behold, sort of, you're right. Um, that's the sort of model of leadership they've got. Paul is not that. And as we'll see, working our way through the letter, others have come into this church in Corinth. They appear very impressive. We'll see it, chapter 3, 1 to 3, they have impressive credentials. Chapter 11, 13, they, they present as incredibly forceful characters that you'd want to follow. And they're saying, look at Paul, he's a joke. In prison, feeble, stumbling, He's a loser. Don't follow him. Where's the glory in that? God is a God of glory. There's nothing impressive about Paul, is the comment that's made. So what are the Corinthians meant to make? 
now of this man, Paul, who had founded the church, been with them for 18 months or so, a few years earlier, but actually is, in and of himself, not impressive. Well, being realistic, I think it's a part of all of us that naturally leans towards the rippling muscled or the the, the great orator that, that can lead the charge. It's kind of instinctive rather than someone who says, well, I'm weak, but God is strong. I just think it's sort of our default setting. As someone told me recently, uh, uh, one evening they were reading to their son, six years old, uh, and they were reading through the book of Acts and got to Acts chapter 7. And uh, Stephen is preaching and uh, he's the first martyr. The crowds turn hostile and stone him to death. And they read this story and uh, his son listened and sort of nodded. His dad said, oh, you know, Stephen held on to Christ, didn't he? Trusted Christ at his death, didn't he? And the son said, yeah. Bit of a shame that Batman wasn't there. <laughs> if Batman was there, it was sort of wow, kapow, bosh, and uh, taken out all the crowd and uh, saved Stephen. And Stephen could have gone on and preached another day. That would have been much better, wouldn't it, Daddy? Um, The thing is, of course, God didn't send Batman to save his people. He sent his son, who triumphed through his death. And the, the living God, when he wanted to spread his gospel message in the first century, didn't send Batman. He sent the Apostle Paul who was very weak, very feeble, but knew that when he was weak, God's strength could achieve great things. And so Paul starts his letter, not as you might expect him to, right into the Corinthians, I know, you know, I know I'm being criticized, I'm a fool, I'm useless, I'm feeble, I'm weak, things aren't that bad, you know, one or two things are going quite well for me. He doesn't do that, he says, I'm being accused of being weak and feeble and unimpressive, and I am. And let me start off this letter by telling you quite how bad I am. I am very unimpressive. But you know what? My sufferings, they don't discredit my ministry. In fact, they, they authenticate it. Let me explain. He says, yes, I'm suffering. Yes, I've got all sorts of troubles. But that is for you and for your good. God comforts in troubles. Let's look at it then and uh, turn to this uh, chapter 1. Paul starts off by asserting his authority. He's an apostle, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. He's writing to the church in Corinth and uh, the particular issues that are there, but not just them. It's a letter for the whole of the region. This is truth that is good no matter what our church setting. But then he jumps in, uh, chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father of that we can comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. Now you do notice as this was read, there is enormous emphasis here on comfort in this little passage. Ten times in the paragraph, comfort. Actually 17 times in this letter, comfort. 
20 more times in the New Testament. Paul, sorry, excuse me, 26 times out of 31 in the New Testament, Paul writes of comfort. So without you know, numbers, who cares? But this is the apostle of comfort writing the letter of comfort, and this is the paragraph of comfort in it. You get no more intense observations on this subject than here. So it's a rich resource. And you see in verses 3 and 4, at the most simple level, what is he saying? God comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble. At the simple level, he's saying, having experienced enormous hardship and distress, I'm able to comfort you, not only to sympathize but to let you know how God strengthened me and kept me going through that so that he'll do the same for you. Now, at a simple level, of course, those who have grieved are able to cope best or perhaps best help those who are grieving. You know, those who have suffered a bereavement, lots of people will say sorry to you, but actually those who have been through it themselves, they get it just a bit more deeply. Uh, and they tell you the things that you need to hear. When you've suffered some form of loss or you're going through the meal a great deal, you don't want someone just to listen and say, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Do you know what? I had a flat tire on Monday as well. Well, you know, okay, some deep traumas happened in my life. It just doesn't quite work just to say that level of empathy. It is hard to comfort properly without having known troubles. It's a reality, isn't it, in life? Don't be overstate it, in the sense it's not that Paul is saying uh, you have to have had identical pain. You can only comfort someone who loses a spouse if you've lost a spouse. No, he's not saying that, but that an experience of going through the mill, of suffering, and being supported by God through that, that, that does just develop a compassion in someone that is very lovely when you're experiencing pain. Now, I don't think I'm describing anything particularly complicated. I think, as a church family, it's something that we know and experience often, frequently. It's good and healthy. But that is, in one sense, what he's describing. And yet, for Paul, there's a slightly sharper focus to just more than just general sufferings of life. It's very unusual for Paul not to start one of his letters with thanksgiving. Normally you have Paul to the church, grace and peace to you. I thank God for you. I thank God that you're growing. I thank God that this is taking place. No thanksgiving here, actually, straight into this praise be, with its emphasis on comfort. Now, I think... The Old Testament background is probably helpful to us here. We had one or two readings from Isaiah. Because there, particularly chapter 40 onwards of Isaiah, the sense of comfort, when God brings comfort, it isn't that he's just making life a little bit more pleasant. It isn't when the Lord says, Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort ye my people. I'm going to come and give you a foot rest and plump up your cushions. And you want another cup of tea? I'll make you another cup of tea. It's not just slightly superficial, oh, you know, now you're a little bit bit more cozy. Well, you know, pillow a bit soft? I'll give you a slightly firmer one. Be comfortable. Rather, you're experiencing the hardship 
of living in a foreign land and uh, you're aliens and you're not. I'm going to act now. I'm about to. I'm about to do something to change your life. I'm about to, well, redeem you, save you. So I think the comfort Paul is speaking of here, perhaps you think less of it as an anaesthetic to dull the pain. Life is painful, I'll just make it go away a little bit. It's more perhaps a shot of adrenaline. Your knees are weak, here's something to strengthen you. Your spirits are sagging, here's something that will get you up on your feet and you can keep going again. I'm going to bring you comfort and you're about to collapse but I'll get you walking again. That sense of comfort is uh, what Paul is talking about, it seems. And of course, the other element of the the comfort here is it, it, it comes in the midst of hardship. So it's in troubles, verse 4. The same word, ellipsis, it gets translated variously, distress, hardship, verse 4, verse 6, verse 8. But it has, well, it's a fairly broad word, troubles. So Paul could use it in this letter of external pressures, chapter 4, verse 8, I'm hard-pressed. You know, there, there are all sorts of burdens coming upon me from the outside. But also, internally, chapter 7, verse 5, I'm, I'm scared. Troubles. So God can bring comfort in all troubles, emotional illness, physical sickness, financial distress. And yet for Paul, The troubles he's speaking about primarily are those of the Christian life. Not just, look, I know it's annoying if the tube isn't running. I know it's annoying if your computer crashes, but not really so much those troubles. He's speaking of the troubles of the Christian life. The troubles he's experienced in seeking to share the message of Jesus Christ with a culture that is hostile to him. That's primarily the sense in which Paul is speaking. I'm sure there's a general sense too. But Paul is saying here, praise God then who brings comfort, verse 4, so that we, he's talking of himself as an apostle, we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. Paul, excuse me, Paul says, God brings comfort, not so that I'm comfortable, but so that I can pass it on to you. Now, that's something we get in the Christian life all the time. You know, and, and the strengthening that takes place. I uh, read on holiday, I'd uh, never read it before, it's a fairly famous book, Richard Wormbrand, uh, and his biography, Torture for Christ, but... Um, Romanian pastor uh, arrested under uh, communism in Romania, uh, and he, I mean, it's a, just an extraordinary read, really, of his confidence in the living God. And he's in prison for eight and a half years for preaching, and uh, tortured and beaten, and gets released, and preaches for Christ, and is thrown straight back in prison again. And you read it, and you think, "Good man, what courage!" And it does. It sort of gives you an adrenaline shot, and you think, "Yeah, I can stand up." I can live for Jesus Christ as well. It has that impact upon us. And I think that's what Paul is primarily describing here. Praise God who has strengthened me. And I want to do that to you. I'm at the point of collapse. But I've been encouraged. And let me pass that on. God will keep you. God has purposes in this. 
God comforts in troubles. There are two things really you ought to say. Uh, um, how does he do that? You get a hint here and more later on in the book. Uh, and then why? You get much on the why here in chapter 1. God comforts in troubles. How does he do that? Well, verse 5, it's through Christ. I'll explain that in a moment. And then we'll see also related, chapter 7, verse 6, it's through his people. So here's the explanation of how then God brings comfort in troubles. The point you get here is he does it because the Christian is united to Jesus Christ. We'll get to the other in a moment. Verse 5, dense little verse, but let's have a look at it. So he's explaining, I can bring comfort to you because uh, I've been comforted from God. Verse 5, because for just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. Question, what are the sufferings of Christ that flow into Paul's life? What does that mean? Well, on the one hand, it's just his ministry, his preaching, I think. He, he's afflicted, we'll see it in verse 8 in a moment, he, you know, he's in, his life's in danger. Uh, and so in one sense, this sufferings of Christ, I think is just, I'm trying to preach Christ, I'm trying to explain him, I'm trying to teach him to people who don't know him, and I'm getting beaten up for doing so. There's that sense to it. And yet, I wonder here if he's talking of something a bit more specific, the general pattern of the Christian life more detail here, you go on to it in chapter 4. But when you become a Christian, you're united spiritually to Jesus Christ. And every Christian will receive, will know in part, a faint echo, or a strong one, of the sufferings that Jesus experienced, but also the confidence that his resurrection brings. Every Christian will know that in part. So verse 5, the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. So in a similar way, just as in elsewhere in Paul's thinking, Romans chapter 8 verse 17, he'll talk of all Christians, we're heirs with Christ if we share in his sufferings, that we share in his glory. What Paul is saying is that Christians follow a saviour who knew suffering before he ascended to glory. That's the saviour that Christians follow. And we should expect an echo of following that path. That it isn't just triumph and success and wonder and prosperity here and now. But if you're a Christian, you should expect suffering before glory. That will vary how strongly. Not all of us will be Richard Wormbrand and imprisoned in any sense at all. Probably not. But there will be some echo of that. You've got to know that. I mean, there's a strong theme coming through this letter. And yet, I think Christians often do get confused. And there are plenty of teachers who confuse. So occasionally someone will uh, have a conversation with someone and uh, they'll say... I don't understand what God is doing. I'm unemployed, I've lost my job, money is tight. And, um, but I, I attend church. I pray. I tithe. So I'm doing everything I'm meant to do, and yet life is going hard. What's malfunctioning? 
Well, what's malfunctioning is the person's understanding of how God works. It's not a transaction. You can't buy comfort and ease in this life by paying off God. He's the Lord. Jesus said, if anyone would follow after me, he must enjoy luxury and prosperity and health and forever and go from one degree of glory and his house will get bigger every three years until he lives in a mansion. Or maybe he didn't say that. Maybe he said, and he did say, if anyone will follow after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And so if your expectation here and now is, well, if I tickle God a little bit, if I, if I tip God into these small ways, obviously everything will go well. You will be disappointed. It may work for a little while, but you'll be disappointed in life. Paul says, oh, if you're a Christian, you'll know in part being united to him in his sufferings, but also in confidence of resurrection glory. You'll know both of those things. Okay, how is this a comfort in any sense? Well, uh, verse 5, how does God comfort in our troubles? Because a Christian is united to Christ, and in a way, I think he'll explain more in later chapter, particularly chapter 4, when you're united to Christ, you, you will experience hardship in this life for being a Christian, but he'll strengthen you. You'll know somewhat of the confidence of Jesus. Even in the worst of his troubles, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There is, if we can put it in blunt language, a supernatural strengthening that comes from being united to Jesus Christ. And sometimes you look at Christians going through the mill and you think, how do they keep going? And the answer is not complicated. God keeps them going. And I think that's what he's talking about in chapter 5. How? How does God comfort in troubles? Well, if you're united to Christ, you know your master. And comes through other people to that, and he strengthens you. But the second element comes through other people, which is uh, why we had read chapter 7. You'll see that there, where we get there eventually, but in chapter 7, again, much language of comfort. Paul could say he's comforted because, well, he knows the Corinthians are going well. The little background is Paul had written them a bit of a stinker of a letter, a loving letter, a kind letter, but a stiff letter saying, hey, look, last time I was with you, you were pretty rude to me, uh, and we need to sort that out, and also your behavior needs sorting out. It had been a firm letter, and now he's been waiting nervously, what's the response going to be? Well, we all know that in part. Sometimes we'll write letters. Occasionally I'll write a letter to someone, look, I'm not sure that's a great decision you're making. Or I wonder if you need to forgive that person. You send these letters off and you think, oh, what are they going to make of me? What are they going to make of me? And you sort of wait and wait and wait. And eventually, you know, nothing comes. You think, oh, they hate me, they hate me. No, and then you see them. And they say, oh, thanks for your letter. I've been on holiday for two weeks. I didn't, you know, I've only just got it. It was a really helpful letter. Oh. Um, that sort of thing that Paul has, he's sent them this letter. He's been waiting. What are they going to make of it? And in chapter 7, the response was, Titus came and told me, you've repented, that you're going really well, that you want to see me again, that, our, that we've been reconciled. Great comfort coming through other people. Often it is others who are the, the source of God's comfort. So Paul is thrilled to see his mate, Titus. It's always good to see a mate. But what comforts him even more is hearing that this church in Corinth is going really well. 
It's a mixture of things, isn't it? When last year uh, we lost a little daughter, essentially, uh, there were some who, I think, uh, knew precisely what to say and had suffered deeply themselves and and had real insightful words of comfort. Others didn't. I mean, others would turn up and say, we don't know what to say. We're praying for you and we've baked for you. And that's also great. Sometimes you don't know what to say. But others would write and say, look, we don't know what to say. But let me tell you what God's been doing in my life. It may be of some encouragement to you. And it was. Enormously. Because sometimes when you go through a rough time, to be told, hey, I'm going well. The Lord has caused me to repent on this issue and follow him wholeheartedly. You think, great, God is at work in your life and that's what I need to hear now. There's a sense of that to Paul. How is he comforted? The Corinthians, he hears from them. Okay, they've repented, we're reconciled, they're going well following the Lord. Great, great. God comforts in troubles. How does he do that? Well, there's a a union through Christ knowing him that, that comforts us and strengthens us. Often through people. They're going well. They come. They speak words of encouragement. You hear they're following the Lord. Why? Three reasons why uh, we're told that God works this way. Allows us to suffer and then brings comfort in the suffering. Three reasons. Let's let's par through these. The first then, it is so that we spur others to patient endurance. Verse 6. If we're distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And I hope you was firm, because we know that just as you share in our suffering, so also you share in our comfort. Christian suffering has a purpose. Paul's suffering grows their patient endurance, their ability to keep going in the tough times. Of course, if you're an atheist, you're not allowed to ask, why? Why has this happened? Well, stuff happens. This is just this world is how it is. You can't even ask. Your life is out of control. You're not allowed to ask that question, I'm afraid. It's just unlucky. But for the Christian, when suffering comes, you could ask why. You may not always get a clear answer, of course, but you could ask why. And the answer will always have in part, God has purposes. And he will strengthen others as you keep holding on to him. Uh, Someone received last week uh, a prayer letter from Matt Lloyd. Matt Lloyd was on the staff here until 18 months ago in a tragic illness. He lost use of his... It was was wonderfully... And uh, he sent out a letter last week. It It was wonderfully honest. That'll be just a quote, if I may. I continue to experience a wide range of emotions. Sometimes I feel the need to express the raw cries or confusion of the Psalms. Other times I fight the mental battle of not indulging certain thoughts or fears for my future and trusting God for the 24-hour period at hand. But I do know Psalm 54, verse 4. Surely God is my help. The Lord is the one who sustains me. Now I read that and he spurs me on. I read of his clinging to the Lord 
and desire to serve the Lord in trials as he's adjusting. And I think that's great. Oh, brother, you strengthen me. Yeah, I can keep serving the Lord as well. He spurs me on. So we spur others to patient endurance. That's one of the reasons the Lord allows this, verse 6 and 7. Secondly, so we're forced to rely upon the Lord alone, verses 8 to 10. Verse 8, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. I think it's a reference to Acts 19. There's a riot in Ephesus. He's driven out of the town, probably. Uh, We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He says, look, I, I just, I, I, it's good to be informed. I want to share this with you. I thought I was going to die. I was under the sentence of death, verse 9. Look, I've chosen the hymns for the funeral. I thought this was it. Now, why did the Lord allow me to do this? Verse 9, this happened that we, he's talking of himself, we might not rely on ourselves, but God. The Lord brought me to the point where I thought I was about to die. Why did he do that? So that I rely on him. And the corollary of that, not myself. Affliction by its very nature removes the things upon which our comfort had been built, our hope had been built. The Lord brought Paul to the point of death, but he wasn't destroyed. The only thing that got broken was his self-confidence. That was what was shattered at this point. He got to the point where he said, I got nothing. I've got nothing, Lord, but you. You're all I've got to cling to. And often mature faith is built upon the ruins of our self-confidence. Paul is saying here, essentially, his Christian suffering, it forced him to believe ever more upon the God who raises the dead. It made him think more of resurrection life, the life to come. Let me again, just another little sentence or two from the letter that Matt Lloyd wrote last week. Because of the hope and joy that Christ gives, I've been able to express some deep sadness without fear of sinking. Because of the sadness, I sometimes feel I'm driven more deeply into the hope Christ's resurrection has secured. It's ballast for the soul. See what he's saying? My life has been, you know, I've known real sadness as I've adjusted to the loss of my legs. It's been very painful, but it has made me think much, much more about the hope of resurrection life. But I'll be with the Lord in glory, but I can run and dance, he can never dance, run and play sports all over again. Of course. And that's what Paul is describing. He was forced to rely upon the Lord, not just his own strength. Why do these things happen? Well, we can spur others to patient endurance. We ourselves, if we're going through trials, can be forced to rely upon the Lord. At the last one, verse 11, so we'll involve others in prayer. Verse 11, uh, or bit, bit halfway through verse 10, on him we set a hope that he'll continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many.
when we're struggling, troubles encourage us to pray in our own life. But here, there seems to be this little circle. Paul says, you Corinthians pray, then the Lord may well answer prayers, and then people will give thanks that you've prayed. Great. Great. Get involved, he says. There's something here about their corporate prayer life, it seems to me, that they're observed praying so people can give thanks for them. But others will get involved as well. That's not the only truths, of course, the scriptures would have on this issue. But here, why does God allow us to suffer and then comfort us in the suffering? So we spur others to patient endurance, so we're forced to rely upon him, so we'll involve others in prayer. What do you get in chapter 1, then, of this letter? It's a, it's a beautiful truth for a horrible time. But the, the depth of comfort that Paul knows and wants to pass on. There's only that depth to it because it comes in adversity, in pain, in trial. He wants to pass on. And so you, you, the picture is, I guess, that, that the Lord is the source of comfort. The channel is Jesus Christ. And then you and I, with this sort of little irrigation system of pipes, as the comfort flows from God, through Christ, to us, and then we let it flow to fertilize the faith of others around us. That's the picture here. And so he'd say in chapter 1, don't despise me for my sufferings and troubles. They're of real merit and good for you. And so I'm sure he'd want us to hear don't, in this life, despise your troubles, your hardships. They're good for you. They'll teach you to rely upon the Lord. They're good for others who will look upon and see you standing firm, and their faith will be strengthened. You will help to keep them in their hardship. And I guess you look at this magnificent title, of the Lord, the God and Father, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort. And I think Paul would say to the false teachers in town, those who are magnificent and ripple with their muscles and shout from the rooftops, you're missing out. You don't know the God of all comfort. You don't know the Father of compassion. Your understanding of the Lord is superficial. Because it is when you're weak that you know him very, very wonderfully as a God of all comfort, Father of all mercies, compassion. And there is a richness of faith in knowing him as such. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, here is uh, strong meat for our nutrition. Here is uh, tough teaching that will sustain us through the toughest of times. Thank you that you are wonderfully the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. Uh, and thank you that you've 
left this here for us. You've given us this Apostle Paul and, and, and his teaching. So we know how rightly to expect life in this world. Thank you for those you've given us who have known suffering, but your sustaining comfort through it. And have sustained us through the difficulties of this life and hard times. And we pray that we will be those who are able to provide rich comfort to one another in the midst of trials, because we know you deeply as the God of all comfort. Amen.